Chris Simbroski is back from space. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. The crew of SpaceX's Inspiration4 mission spent three days in space, launching from the Kennedy Space Center on SpaceX's Falcon 9 rocket. The mission was bankrolled by billionaire Jared Isaacman and aimed to raise money for St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. It was the first all-civilian mission with four ordinary people. One of these crew members is Chris Sombrowski. He and his crewmates trained for the mission over the course of a few months and took us all along with them through a documentary that aired on Netflix in near real time. Sombrowski and his crew are now back here on Earth. So what was the experience like? We'll speak with Chris about the mission and what's next after leaving the planet. Simbroski's back on Earth. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. On the Inspiration4 mission, Sombrowski's call sign was Hanks. A friend won the seat in a raffle for St. Jude and gave it to Sombrowski. Hanks is an Air Force vet and works in the aerospace industry. His wife and two daughters cheered him on from the ground as he ventured into space, spending three days in low Earth orbit. He's now back here on the ground in Washington and joins us now to talk about his trip. Chris, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's glad to be here, Brendan. Thanks. So, Chris, you have to try to describe this experience to me because if, if I were in your shoes, I'd probably be even pinching myself now, uh, wondering if, if this was real life. What, what, is, what has this mission been like and this experience been like to you? Well, first, I, I just want to say getting back to what feels like a sense of normalcy has felt surreal. And then I realized that that's how I've been describing the last years, like the whole entire time this experience has been surreal, um, not really understanding that I had been part of this election process so that I was chosen to be the Inspiration4 crew initially back on March 7th, even though Jared said we'd like to invite you on. And I had that very just uh, stoic reaction that was really boring to watch when they replayed it for me later. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, yeah, so it was uh, just, I was just in shock and in disbelief at first. And then, you know, they picked me up three days later to go down to California to start going through the medical evaluations and, you know, did a couple online psychological evaluations. Um, it, but it didn't seem real even then until, you know, Kid or Scott Poteet, the mission manager for Inspiration4, um, physically handed me the, the patch uh, along with a couple of other things and, um, and then having it, holding it in my hand, standing there next to Jared and next to Dr. Proctor, um, just holding that patch in your hand for the mission really gave it that tangible sense of like, oh my goodness, this really is happening. This is real. Um, and that's when I think I was willing to accept that this was actually something that could potentially be happening. It wasn't even the jet ride down uh, or the cameras that were all of a sudden the first people I met uh, on the entire journey is like, oh, um, hi, we're from Time. Can we put a microphone on your on your shirt? Hi, my name is Chris. Nice to meet you too. Uh, <laughs> but it, it was that you know getting that physical piece of of, of uh, memorabilia of that patch that really kind of made it feel like this is actually happening. 
how do you, how do you describe the rest of this year except it just an absolute whirlwind of one adventure after the other that I think just taking any one of those things that we did as a crew together this year, whether it was, you know, climbing a mountain in the snow or spending a couple of nights up there, going in a couple of fighter jet flights, any one of those adventures, um, even doing the high altitude chamber training. I mean, the, how often do you do that sort of thing in the course of a normal person's life? You don't. Um, but doing any one of those things in the course of a year would have made the year spectacular. Um, but then jamming all these things together um, in a span of six months, including orbiting the Earth for three days, uh, it's taking me a while to process all of this and understand what in the world did we just do? How is this going to affect me for the rest of my life? How, what does it mean to everybody else around me? Um, how big of a vacation has my wife earned and will I ever be able to afford something that I feel like she deserves? So, <laughs> I, you know, you, you talk about that, that jam packed year. I mean, there was really no time for any of you on the crew to breathe. You had so much training, so much outreach to do. Um, I, I've had the opportunity to talk to a lot of NASA astronauts on this show, and they tell me that that's how their training is like going up to it. But they have that one moment when they're strapped into the vehicle, and they're waiting, they're in, and they're just waiting for that countdown to happen, and they can finally relax. Did you have that moment, too, in the capsule? I Yeah, I mean, there's a, a lot of time between hatch being sealed and the LES arming um, before they start fueling the Falcon 9. Uh, you've got about an hour and a half or so, and you just you're just sitting there hanging out, waiting, and you know we're trying to stay pumped. We're fist bumping each other like, oh, this is happening here. We're just kind of going through it, and I'm just sitting there thinking about everyone that's back on the ground or at the viewing stands watching this happen, waiting for the sun to go down so that we can go up. Um, I, I really had that thought. Um, I think that moment for, of realization or just acceptance for me was uh, of what you're talking about was actually really close to the end of the count as we got down to T zero. Uh, we are where um, it's probably about um, you know two minutes before launch, and I'm just starting to think, wow, we're actually going to be going to space. This is so cool. And then I'm thinking in the same moment that wow the this is huge. I know what this is looking like. I know what this looks like from the outside, um, from the ground. This means a lot. This is going to be historic. That's, that's incredible. This is huge. Oh my gosh, I'm going to space. And then I'm like, I get to ride a rocket again. And you know, I mean, this is the fun and the, the enormity hits all at the same time. And then I just get destroyed by some amazing kind words from the core when Sarah Gillis calls up and says, um, it's been a pleasure and honor working with you and training you these past six months. Like, come on, Sarah, give me a break here. I had this great moment all excited, and now I can't wipe the sweat off my eyes because the visors are down. Um, <laughs> um, and that was just, yeah, that just kind of having that whole emotional release is um, not something you're able to do as the rocket's taking off. And uh, I think... I think one of the, the cool things, though, about being this kind of a special mission is that we did have that documentary crew following us, and they were they have put together somewhat of a you know a video journal for us. Um, and so, being able to go back now and watch it 
and uh, take that breath and process it through someone else's eyes, it really kind of gives you that moment of pause and thinking about what and reminding, just really reminding us all of what we did this year. Tell me about that moment that you realized you were in space. What was it for you? Oh, wow. Yeah. So once you go through the whole episode of launch and, you know, the engine's running for 10 minutes that, um, but you've heard everything, the turbo pumps roughing up, you know, and, you know, pedal to the metal and throwing the fuel into the engine and you're losing mass because of the tanks getting lighter. So you're increasing the G's and you're really hearing, um, it's like a formula one race car that's ramping up and like you're getting pushed back into your seat and then you're coming up to your final orbital velocity and you hear everything ramp down and the audible pitch just kind of drops and, and rather quickly. And you're just now all of a sudden it's quiet except for the cabin fans and you're just there. You're just floating there, hanging in your straps. Um, Jared describes that initial feeling as if you were laying on your bed with your head hanging off the side, um, up, looking at the ceiling upside down initially. Um, and it's just that moment of just, wow, we made it. The rocket did what it was mm-hmm. supposed to do. We're here. LES is disarmed, so that's good. We're not escaping anywhere. <laughs> we made it to orbit. Um, Haley releases the zero-G indicator, and so the, the astronaut puppy is floating around the capsule a little bit. And we just sit there and wait for a while, because we're going to do another uh, uh, burn, oh, do some activations so we can get to the higher altitude that we're, we're targeting. Um, and while we're sitting there waiting, you know, we launched just after sunset, and so we launched into the night going across Europe. Um, and as we're waiting and, and prepping to do nose cone opening and prepping to do the whole um, additional burn to circularize and get higher up at uh, 580 kilometers, the sun started rising. And I remember just all of a sudden seeing the inside of the dragon start to light up with the most brilliant white light through the side windows that I think I'd ever seen. And I had never seen such pure and clear light just flood the cabin and just make it glow. Um, And that was an amazing moment there just to realize, oh yeah, we're feeling weightlessness. We're floating a little bit here. We're not free to float about the cabin just yet. Um, I'm going to take things slowly when I do get out of my straps. But the sun's coming up and it's going to keep coming up every 90 minutes now. And that, that, that was pretty special. Mm-hmm. From from your seat, did you have a, a clear lookout out the window? Oh, yeah. Haley and I had, like, the best look ever out, out at space <laughs> first. You know, Jared and Cyan, they, they had those screens in front of them, so they couldn't see. If I, I just looked down between my toes. I looked straight out through the window. Um, oh, wow. And so I was able to see the, the, the crew axis arm retract, revealing, you know, when it was still daylight outside, and we could I could watch pretty clearly as as uh, the sun was going down and seeing it start to get dark, um, mm-hmm. which also meant I could you know, sneak my iPad a l- little bit up on my knee so that the camera could capture re-entry and see the flashes of the plasma as we come back through the atmosphere. So it was a cool view. It, granted, it was, it was all black initially <laughs> once we got to space. Uh-huh. Um, uh, but then you know, as, as Dragon 
um, maneuvered around, you start to see parts of the earth through those amazing windows and mm -hmm. it was, it was, yeah, just breathtaking. Uh, your, your crewmate, uh, Dr. Proctor did an interview with uh, National Geographic and said that, you know, she had some space adaptation syndrome, um, issues while she was up there, which is something that all astronauts experience. Um, I I'm wondering, did, did you feel it? Did you expect that? Um, how were you feeling while you were up there? Were you able to enjoy the view or were you too busy yakking or, or being all stuffy? <laughs> well, right. Well, you know, they, they, they were telling us, you know, that, about half half the astronauts experienced space motion sickness. Mm -hmm. We were par for the course. And I think I uh, raised my hand first saying, you know, I, I don't feel so great, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, nobody nobody actually, uh, you know, vomited or in space, but that was because we were taking precautionary measures. Mm -hmm. uh, Haley uh, did great in administering some, uh, some medicine, you know, so she gave me a shot. Um, you know, so I, I we were... Both Sly and I were, you know, a little bit slower the first few hours of the first day, um, so that meant we, as a crew, got behind on our timeline and didn't get as nearly as many things accomplished on time as we would have hoped. So uh, we had to wait till the next day to get caught back up and get ahead of the timeline. But yeah, I, I was not feeling so great initially. I did take some preventative maintenance medicine before flight. I had a scopolamine patch on, and um, we. Um, there were a couple other things that we were, uh, had available to us, um, but I think it was just the, you know, the medicine that they were able to give me a sh through a shot that really just, you know, granted I got a little bit sleepy. I probably should have <laughs> had a cup of coffee or something equivalent to follow it to, to stay awake. But uh, um, after about a, a little nap and uh, a little medicine, I was good to go and uh, up, left, right, down didn't matter after that. Speaking of naps, how how did you ever find the motivation to sleep? I feel like I would try to stay up the entire three days. <laughs> we thought so too, right? Uh, but I tell you what, I, you get tired. We were exhausted by the end of our uh, scheduled day. Uh, I won't say that we got eight or nine hours of sleep. I don't think any of us um, slept more than four or six hours a night. But, you know, come end of the day, uh, we all went straight to sleep. I, I think in the middle of the... There might have been one or two nights, maybe Cyan was painting and her little spot underneath the seats on the cargo deck, um, which I'm kind of jealous of. She found the one really flat spot to stretch out on. <laughs> um, <laughs> Haley loves sleeping in her seat in space. I think both Jared and I were taking ibuprofen in the next morning. Um, <laughs> but, uh, no, I mean, you were tired. I didn't want to sleep all, all eight hours either. I was anxious to get up and moving around and make the most of it too. Uh, but uh, mm -hmm. yeah, you, you, you apparently even in zero G, even if you're not eating as much or working so hard, uh, mentally you're just flooded with all this new information and sensory uh, stuff from the windows and just feeling out the different parts of your body and maneuvering in, uh, in the capsule that, man, we were just exhausted by the end of each day. Mm -hmm. Still to come, our conversation with Inspiration 4's Chris Sombrowski continues, including some insight into Dragon's Commode. There really is no substitute for trial and error in space, uh, so we just did the best we could, and uh, things worked out just fine, and there were no um, embarrassing moments of <laughs> things getting released, I guess you could say. <laughs> Are We There Yet? is back in a minute.
You're listening to Are We There Yet here on WMFE America's Space Station. I'm Brendan Byrne. We're speaking with Chris Sombrowski. He's a member of SpaceX's Inspiration4 mission, the first all-civilian mission to low-Earth orbit and back. Chris, I have an unhealthy obsession with the history of the space toilet, so I have to ask you a question about how, sure. how it was uh, using the facilities of the Crew Dragon. Did you feel adequately prepared, and, and how, how odd was it uh, relieving yourself in space? Oh, gosh. I, I will say that, like, I mean, they have a privacy curtain that we put up. You know, that the way the, the facilities are oriented on, on Dragon, you know, the, that uh, you, you pull out this curtain, um, and it gives you some visual privacy between you and your crewmates. Um, I will say that it was a little bit awkward every now and then someone would bump up against the curtain and you're like, well, that makes things a little bit uncomfortable, but, uh, <laughs> no, I mean, it, we were adequately, adequately trained for what we needed to be doing there. Um, there really is no substitute for trial and error in space. Uh, so we just did the best we could and, uh, things worked out just fine and there were no, um, embarrassing moments of things getting released i guess you could say <laughs> uh so you know we we did fine there um and just took care of business but you did figure out what was best to to, to anchor yourself here there or otherwise and um make make things work as needed mm-hmm. um i, I want to talk a little bit about um I, I had a conversation before you launched with um one of your other crewmates who was here on the ground, Snap, uh, John Krause. Um, yeah. Anybody who is in Florida or in space knows the name. Um, and and we, talked a, we talked a bit about how he was training you all up to, to take some photographs while you were up there. And uh, we had an exchange on Twitter. Um, you seem to really take to uh, photographing while you were up there. Tell me a bit about your, your experience uh, snapping photos from that cupola and uh, what that was like. Well, I mean, he gave us a couple of pointers. He put together a little presentation on PowerPoint or some slides. And so, I, you know, learning the language a little bit more in depth than what I had in the past and did some practice on the ground prior. And, um, you know, it's setting the ISO a little bit higher so that, you know, I'm taking pictures of my kids, you know, making their eyes pop a little bit or, you know, just messing with things like that. I And then what's also, this segues to a lot of different things. Um because we were getting a lot of advice on how to take pictures. We talked to Don Pettit for an hour and a half, um, who's known for taking amazing pictures. I've got one of his books about his space photography sitting on my desk next to me. Um, and uh, let's see, we ended up, we were all in, we were able to talk to Thomas Pesquet, um, who's on the space station now, and ask him, hey, what, what should we look for once we're up there? What are some of the top things that we should absolutely look for and try to photograph and um but yeah i mean snap did great uh taking uh all of our pictures organizing them and uh he went through them and reviewed them and gave some good feedback for for what we did and he thought that we, we definitely learned while we were up in space and paid attention to his lessons so it made him feel good too mm-hmm uh, probably makes a strong case to send him up there at this point now, right? <laughs> Just get let's get Grouse in space. Hey, he, he he'd agree to that. I'd say at a minimum, he, he'd be a great uh, person to talk to about uh, to anyone who's going up to take pictures. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk about that view that you got up there, Chris. Um, you know, astronauts describe it as the overview effect. You know, life changing when you see the planet from a different perspective like that. Um, what was your takeaway from spending three days? in that orbit and, and 
seeing the planet like not many others have before. Um, I think Shatner, even though he was only up in space for a few minutes, <laughs> he he definitely got a full dose of the overview effect, which is uh, pretty incredible to know that you can have that experience in such a short amount of time. Um, I think for me, I was expecting to see things that I... I was expecting to see what I don't see, and I was expecting to see the lack of borders and the lack of you know cultural differences. I was mostly just expecting to be awed at that whole moment of, of like, oh, we're all on this one big spaceship Earth together. And I think there was part of that. I mean, especially at twilight and at night, when you would look over at the horizon of the Earth and you'd see this thin greenish-blue line of the atmosphere extending above the surface of the Earth, um, just ever so slightly, you know, and when we are above that and knowing that that's what's protecting us all between the vacuum of space and life on Earth and that, how important that atmosphere is. Um, but for me, it was kind of experiencing the introduction to a, a, a great life story. Um, like if you're going to be introduced to life on Earth, that was the prologue. Like here is the planet here are all these amazing, beautiful places. The Andes Mountains in South America, where they're along. You see the beautiful blue ocean up against the coast, and the white-capped mountains, followed by the desert on the other side. And then you see Australia, where you have the coral reefs and the blue water, and you've got the beautiful rocks in the central part of the country, um, and that are glowing that you know reddish brown color. And you also see the wildfires and the smoke coming up. You see these incredible spirals of clouds all over the earth and realize there are so many clouds covering the earth at any one time, um, which I, obviously there are, but none of us expect to see that because when we're looking at maps, they're not cloud covered, right? So we get <laughs> used to just seeing land masses. Um, and then seeing um, at night over the United States, this incredible line of thunderstorms uh, that went from southern Texas all the way up to Canada um, and seeing how dynamic the earth is and that it's not just a single thunderbolt here or there, but it's constant static electricity up and down this, this, this front of storms. Um, for me, it was feeling that and seeing how amazingly beautiful and dynamic the earth is and then having that feeling of, okay, you see all this now, Go and create new chapters and be more specific and be there physically with these with the with those mountains in South America. Go explore that 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 area in Australia that just looked so cool from space, and now go be a part of it in person because there is no other planet like Earth. Now I will say the opposite effect happened to Jared. He saw the moonrise come across the horizon, that was impactful for him um, more than anything else because he kept thinking. Well, if the moon is rising so beautifully like this, and it was gorgeous. I mean, the brightest you can, the brightest full moon you can imagine, take it up a notch and clear it up a bit. And he kept thinking, wow, well, if we're up here at almost 600 kilometers, why aren't we just going farther? Why aren't we going to explore more and see what else we can find? I mean, we're so used to being here on Earth. If this planet is so gorgeous, why can't... There will be other places that we explore that are, are as equally phenomenal and interesting. So for him, it was like, man, this is the first step of uh, getting out there even further. Mm -hmm. 
are you saying Jared's going to charter a, a mission to the moon next? <laughs> I don't think the moon's far enough out. <laughs> <laughs> and and finally, Chris, um, what's next for you? Oh, I don't gosh, I don't think there's right. anything cooler you can do than than what you just did. But what are you up to now? Right. Well, I mean, the the, the fundraising for St. Jude goes on, right? So um, mm-hmm. we are up at over a quarter of a billion dollars now, which is just phenomenal. That's um, awesome. And we're continuing to continuing to you know, push forward with that goal because, I mean, doing something great in space comes with that responsibility of doing something great here back on Earth and supporting St. Jude in their mission has been hugely important for us um, and so rewarding. Uh, um, but uh, we've got a couple of things as a crew still coming up. We've got the uh, additional fundraisers for St. Jude. We're still um, going to go down to Memphis as a crew and visit the, ch- the kids there at the hospital. Uh, we've got a couple other... Uh, projects and networks that we're working on together. So uh, there are some things like that. But for me, uh, personally, it's trying to get back to some sort of sense of normalcy, uh, mm-hmm. however you define that. Um, and uh, giving my wife the well-deserved vacation she needs. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> she has supported me and done a whole lot being somewhat of a single mom this year um, mm-hmm. and throughout all the training. So uh, Doing that first and foremost and reconnecting with my family, getting reintegrated there, mm-hmm. then we will slowly but surely see what kind of crazy gets crept back into our lives. What did your girls think about the whole experience? Have you have you all reflected on it together? Um, a little bit. Uh, my, my older daughter, my 10-year-old, she, uh, she between seeing what, what they do at SpaceX and then being able to see a rocket launch, I mean, she was so excited. You could tell she's excited when she starts jumping up and down a little bit, mm-hmm. and, uh, and that's really adorable. I mean, it just it really sparked an interest in STEM uh, careers for her, which is so rewarding as a parent. Um, she loved it. She had some anxiety, and she shared those with her mom, and we talked about those things. And I think she was really just kind of really excited and overwhelmed. She doesn't really know how to describe it yet, so mm-hmm. she keeps just saying it was just weird. <laughs> and then my three-year-old just has her uh, SpaceX uh, pajamas onesie and says, Dad, you wear your spacesuit. I'm going to wear my spacesuit. We're going to go out of space. Like, oh, my gosh. Right, that is this. adorable. Right. <laughs> it's so adorable. <laughs> well, Chris, it was a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much for sharing your experience with, with not only me but, but the rest of the world. So thank you. Oh, Brendan, a pleasure speaking with you anytime. That's going to do it for this week's show. Be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed. Get on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can visit WMFE.org slash Are We There Yet? Stay up to date on the latest space news. Follow me on Twitter. I'm at SpaceBrendan. Or visit the website WMFE.org slash space. Are We There Yet? is a production of WMFE, America's Space Station. Editorial guidance this week from LaToya Dennis. The show's intern is Maria Brasino. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. And until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.